So we'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 on page 1187 in the Red Bibles. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, above your love, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Hi folks, my name is Toby. I'm one of the part-time pastors here at the Gate Church, and it is such a privilege to be here in front of you now. Whatever week you've had, I want you to know that you are so, so welcome. Now, I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, if we, uh, let me switch this on. Marmite. Marmite. I'm looking at some confused faces out there. You will either love it or you will hate it. This is a British spread uh, that was invented around the time of the First World War by taking yeast and getting it to basically um, brew, and it turns into this black, salty paste. (laughs) And you will either love it or you will hate it. It really evokes a very strong sentiment from Uh, British people. I believe it's marketed as Vegemite in Australia. Is that right? I think. Yeah, Vegemite. It divides opinion. It pleases some people and it displeases other people. Now, you get people who are described as Marmite people. Um, People who um, sort of split opinion. And it's actually gone into British lexicon now that someone could be a Marmite person. Now, they're often described as strong characters, the kind of people who don't care too much who they please or displease. But if you're like the rest of us, actually, it's pretty easy to be a people pleaser. Uh, I know that that's something I've battled for many years, looking for, to please friends, bosses, family, pastors. Now, the the classic test for this one is the -the over-the-shoulder test, I call it. Okay, so look over your shoulder. If you were doing something terrible, who would you really not want to be there seeing you're doing something terrible? And if you were doing something great, who would you really want to see what you're doing great? Because if you're like, I think, the majority of folks, that can be any number of different people. And quite honestly, for those people who don't see themselves as people pleasers, um, 
they, they get quite a good reputation in our culture at the moment. Um, in fact, the sayings of somebody who's not a people pleaser might be, you know, um, one life, live it. Uh, you see book titles, uh, the subtle art of not giving a, and it's something rude that begins with a letter, which I won't say, but um, it's kind of celebrated. Those people who look to please, essentially, themselves. If you boil it down, one way or another, that sort of not pleasing others, you end up pleasing yourself. Now, if that's the case, there is good in both. Let's be clear here. I'm not slamming both of those. Um, if you didn't want to please certain people, you'd be a very poor friend, wouldn't you? Um, a very poor spouse, bad parent. You'd be dreadful at buying presents uh, if you weren't interested in pleasing other people. Um, however, as we know, and I think those of us who have lived life perhaps as people please us in other ways, know that if you live your life to please people, you will die from their rejection. So if you live life to please people, you will die from their rejection. That's a quote, by the way. That's not me. It's from a guy called Lecrae. He put it better. He said, if you live for acceptance, you will die from their rejection. Um, Now, what's the main point of what I'm getting at here? Now, I'm not sure whether our Father God likes Marmite. I don't know. The jury is out. Love it, hate it, I'm not sure. But I am sure that Jesus is who Father God loves. I am sure Jesus pleases the Father. Now, why am I saying this? It's literally the main point of the whole Bible, basically, is that Father God is pleased with Jesus. And what's that got to do with you and how you live your life every day? Well, I spent a long time dwelling on this passage that we're looking at today. And if we were to sort of boil it down uh, to what is it trying to say in the simplest possible terms, I'd go with this. We're being called to live like Jesus because you are loved in Jesus, right? To live like Jesus because we are loved in Jesus. I'll be coming back to that a lot. Now, um, Let's, let's have a look at this now. Jesus was essentially the ultimate Marmite person. Okay, he was the ultimate Marmite person, but I mean this in a good way. On earth, people who heard him and listened to him and actually took it in would either follow him, literally drop everything and follow him. So they loved him. Or they hated him and they wanted to kill him. In fact, a lot of people in Jerusalem... Loved him one minute, and then when the crowds turned, they hated him. He was the ultimate Marmite person in that sense. But today we're going to be called to live like Jesus because you are loved in Jesus. Now, why is this good news? Why, why is this good news? The whole of this sermon series we've been looking at, First Thessalonians, we've been looking at gospel-centered church. Gospel meaning good news, centered church. Churches often move away from the gospel. Why is this good news. So, in this world of confusion that we live in at the moment, this is good news because the exhaustion of people-pleasing that many of you in here feel can be over. The fear of judgment for your past 
can be over today. The fear of missing out, that emptiness that comes, quite honestly, from just trying to please yourself through hedonism, can be over. That's powerful. Let's just jump into this first bit of the passage that we're looking at now. We're going to just read verses uh, 1 to 3 of chapter 4. Now, I'd really, really urge you, if you haven't got a red Bible near you, please could you get one open? Make sure you've got it with you. I'm going to be referring back to this a lot. We are on page 1,187, I believe, on the church Bibles. Page 1,187. Please follow. Let me read it for you now. So 1,187. We're just going to read those first three verses. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then it says, I'm just going to read the first bit of the third verse. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, I've sort of already introduced this a bit here, but this is basically saying how you should live. It's a big question, isn't it? People have tried to answer that around the world. Um, but here it's saying that we should live in order to please God. You see that first, that verse 1. Not other people, not self. We need to live to please God. Now, surely this is just going to become another form of people-pleasing, right? Um, insofar as you sort of straining with every sinew that you have to please God, to do the right things, to earn God's affection. That's just a story of religion the world over. But there's a massive but in this passage here. It's not literally a but, but it's actually in the word in. Um, you notice, if you just follow with me, can you see, um, so at the end of verse 1, it says, Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, to, to please God. So he's speaking to people who are in Jesus. And he's urging them using Jesus, imploring them using his name. Now, this is critical. This is mission critical for what we're talking about. If we, I haven't given a broad overview of the, the whole book here, but if you go, if you sort of just look at the other leaf, the other page in front of you, and you go to uh, verse 3, it talks about, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. Your labor prompted by love. Do you notice how it's not your, your love that came from labor? It was labor prompted by love. This is the gospel here, right front and center, as we're called to live our lives. Those who are in the Lord Jesus. This places what Paul is saying here, beyond all other worldly religions. You are loved and now live. And do you want to know something great about this letter as well? It's really upbeat. It's already happening. It's already happening. Look at it. It says, um, as in fact you are living. So please God, as in fact you're already living. 
we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Now, this, you sitting here today, it's wonderful to see all these faces, lots of new faces, but we've been here about nine and a half years, which isn't very long by the church's standards, but we've been here a while now, and in the life of the church, past and present, I have seen this happen. I'm looking around. I've seen battles with addiction broken. I've seen incredibly difficult decisions made to follow Jesus. I've seen in the pain, the blood, the sweat, and the tears of life, I have seen people live to please God. I've seen it. If you want to know the details, come and speak to me. But that is one of the benefits of being involved with church in quite a serious way is that you get a front row seat on that. (laughs) It's, It's gritty, but it's real. And then we get into a word that I've sort of um, spent a bit of time looking at. Uh, do you see that? At the end of verse 3, it says, um, so we, we, we've got from, we're living to please God um, because basically we are in Jesus. So we're loved first and then we're living to please God. And it says this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, beginning of verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. This is a word we don't use often, isn't it? And I always sort of had a vague sort of, hmm, I think I'm pretty sure what that means, but I wasn't 100% sure. So you know what I did? I decided I'm an early morning kind of person. So I carved out a nice little early morning slot for me to do some research on Monday so I could know, I could have my sort of ducks in a line and know exactly what I meant by sanctification for you guys now, right? I sat down, had my coffee ready. It was freshly pressed, Okay. I had there, I had my books laid out. I was just ready, and I sat down in the seat, and I was ready to really understand sanctification. And as my rear end touched the chair, and I sat down, I just heard this from upstairs. Tobes, Tobes. <laughs> I said, I won't say it. One of the kids has wet the bed, and the other one's done a nappy that's exploded. Can you help? <laughs> I had to go upstairs and, and deal with that. And I never got to read. No, I did read it. <laughs> but I think God was giving me a practical example of sanctification. Because when I did eventually um, do some revision on what this word was really meaning, you've got an Old Testament kind of understanding of it, which then uh, develops and flourishes into a New Testament understanding of sanctification which in the Old Testament, you had this idea of being set apart. And you had the temple that was the center of sanctification, where you had the priests, and there were um, things which were kept clean, things that were separated. To be sanctified was, these were pictures of God's separateness from man. The very temple was designed to show that whilst God wanted to be known, there was a divide, there was a separateness. But then, this, this book is, this letter is written, what was it, 20 years, wasn't it, after the time of Jesus. So, when Jesus came, lived, and died, the understanding of sanctification took on a whole new color. Because sanctification actually meant, with Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, knowing God more wholly, and quite simply, becoming like Jesus. And so, 
when we look at this here, what we're asking us to do, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. You should be set apart and becoming more like Jesus. And this is the basic structure of, of the way that I think um, it's looking. So the passage that we're looking at here, so we've got the, the first bit that we should live to please God. With them, how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to become more like Jesus. And to live like Jesus, as we've discussed before, because you're loved in Jesus, starts, actually, it would make sense, wouldn't it? The most central thing that you have in your body. And you notice here, let's follow, let's follow the verse. It says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Right, folks. We're dealing with some heavyweight stuff here. We've got all sorts of life experiences in the room here, and I am, I'm going to just pray that I'm able to bring God glory here and, and also to uh, honor each of you as I speak about this. This word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which is a broad term. It does not just mean adultery. It means anything sort of sexual interactions beyond God's sort of description of marriage. That, that, so it's, it's, it's broad. Right? So we're talking about sexual immorality here, not what the world might think. The culture likes to pick and choose little things, which it will agree, that everybody will agree, well, that's really terrible, so that's bad. But this is talking about everything outside the, band, the bounds of what God calls marriage. And look here. It says, each of you should learn to control your own body in a holy and honorable way. So your first responsibility here kind of starts centrally in, as we follow Jesus is with our own body in a way that is holy and honorable. There you go, that holy, the idea of being separated, which goes look, looking back to the Old Testament idea of the temple and the priests who had to be clean and they were separate. Not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Oh my goodness. This is such a central thing in life that brings pain and suffering. I'm in charge of 240 uh, 15 and 16-year-olds, and it started already. The brokenness is absolutely intrinsic. The fallout is cataclysmic. When God's pattern for sexuality is not followed. The hurt is indescribably large. I, I want to point to things which are true in society. The hashtag Me Too stuff is all true. It's all right. Like, I, I genuinely think that as we read this, we see that the power dynamics that have been at play in our own society and history, which have caused great suffering, have been when people fall away from what? God teaches about honoring one another, not taking advantage of a brother or sister. And it's happened in the church. I'm not going to stand here and say it hasn't. It has. And at great cost to the church. And a heart bleeds about this. But look at this. For those of you out there who are suffering, I want to tell you this right now. Look at that. Do you see at the halfway through? Verse 6, it says, The Lord will punish those who commit such sin, sin, sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. We have a tension here, don't we? In that we do believe that you can 
Jesus is sufficient to forgive us for our sins. However, I want to be clear here that this is being taken very seriously. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. It's, it's not beating around the bush. It's the only thing that I know that without... I'm going to try not to identify the person. Some of you will know them. Uh, there's a person in this church who day in, day out, deals with the outworkings of this brokenness in the most horrific of ways. And when I literally had a slight taste of dealing with this in, in my own neighborhood, um, where I saw some horrific um, behavior, which was consistent with this. And I said, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that kind of pain and suffering on a daily basis? And he goes, well, the only way is to know that God will judge it and he will deal with it. He will. It will be dealt with. That's the only thing. God takes this seriously. It starts with our bodies because we're set apart to be holy. We're set apart to be um, vessels of the Holy Spirit. The rest of First Thessalonians, you may have noticed, mentions the Holy Spirit loads. If you look in that first, um, just in that first paragraph in chapter 1, I can see Holy Spirit mentioned at least twice just in the first paragraph. We are called to be vessels of the Holy Spirit, and as such, we're called to be different to the world around us. And we can live like Jesus because you're loved in Jesus. What's this going to look like for us on a daily basis, right? Okay, we can try and avoid the worst things. But what does this look like? This is going to look like when you're feeling frustrated by either your own life in terms of intimacy, know that Jesus lived a fully fulfilled life without actually having lived with, let's say, another person in this way. He lived a fully fulfilled life. Jesus was able to live a fully fulfilled life without having to um, be united with another person in the kind of physical sense. It's an important thing to remember. Because I think that our, our culture tells us a lie, which is that you have to be experiencing everything all the time to be fully fulfilled. Well, Jesus was fully fulfilled, and he didn't. What's this going to look like when we think about the way we treat other people? Well, it's weighty. The way that we treat other people is the way we're treating God's children. So when we're talking about what we look at, the relationships we have, we're remembering that those people are children of God. Let's move on to the next part. To live like Jesus. I think we're called um, to live like Jesus um, with our Christian community. Um, and we can do this. So you just notice how it starts with the body and then it moves out to kind of like our sort of church family here. So we've gone from central, we're now moving out. Verse 9, it says, Now about your love for one another, uh, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. That word more and more, that's the second time that's mentioned more and more. We're called to keep pressing into loving our church family. Now, you notice how it says uh, to love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is sort of in northern Greece, 
and it's throughout. It's not just those people who are on your doorstep, but it is um, a love for one another to think of the church more broadly, going beyond just our sort of close friendships in the here and now. I think within our Christian community, we can live like Jesus by caring for them. You notice the slides at the front. Do you see those people? They're frontline people. Um, the Borblets, uh, the Pilgrims, they're our mission partners across the world. Now, they are our Christian community, and we can love them more and more by praying for them more and more, because believe me, believe you me, there's a spiritual battle going on, and they're on the front line, much as we are, but there is something really specific about, um, I think, when you go to different cultures, as many of you knew have, you and here have done, uh, and, and pursuing Jesus in that way. I think that's an outworking and an application of within our Christian community as well. Now, we can live like Jesus because you're loved in Jesus for the sake of those outside the church as well. Now, look at this. Let's go on to this last bit. I wasn't expecting this bit at the end when I was prepping the sermon. But I think it follows that trajectory. If it starts with the body, then we're looking at kind of like our Christian community. And now we're looking beyond that Christian community here. So, verse 11. And to make your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business Work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The reason I think this is looking at for those outside the church is, do you notice how each of these things, um, minding your own business, um, working with your own hands, your daily life, is all linked to, to win the respect of outsiders? Now, this is so countercultural, isn't it? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I was always told, basically, that if you can do something, you should do something. If you can pursue to be the best, you should be the best. That should be your absolute goal. And I completely bought into that hook, line, and sinker. Uh, absolutely um, worked myself to the bone trying to achieve. And I know a number of other people in here like this, but how liberating is this? We're called to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. It's okay to provide for your family, to put a roof over your heads. It's okay. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. I love how many of our phrases in the English language come straight from the Bible, and this is not the only one. There are so many. To mind your own business. Genuinely, don't go sticking your nose in everyone else's business in an irritating manner. And work with your hands, just as we told you. I don't think this is instructing all of us to become manual laborers. I know Micah has got a great desire to become a carpenter. Uh, and, and he's done a great job on some carpentry. So I'm not, I want to encourage him in that. But I'm not saying this means that we have to work with our hands. Okay? I think it's saying that we need to work. In fact, later on in 2 Thessalonians, it talks about if you, don't, uh, if you won't work, you won't eat. Now... That this needs to be said with absolute clarity here, that also the church provides for widows, right? And provides for people not able to work. But I think if you are, are able to work, there's an absolute call here. Why to work? Actually, so you can win the respect of outsiders, so that you're not becoming a burden on others, right? Because we have this economy of grace here in the church, and I've known it, and I've experienced it, and I've loved it. People have loved me, and I hope that they've received love 
And that economy of grace can be taken advantage of. And I think what Paul's saying is, no, it's a bad witness. And actually, uh, do you notice here, do you see how it says uh, that you can not be, at the very, very last verse there, verse 12 we've looked at, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I don't think this is talking about sort of like just being a prepper and making sure that you've kind of, you don't have to depend on anyone because actually that's not the whole picture of this letter. It's not the whole picture of... Um, Christian community, that we need each other. I think what it's trying to say here is, if you t- take Ephesians, it basically references it. You can actually see it in the margin, maybe. I don't know if these Bibles have it, but it references Ephesians, where it talks about having something to share, that we should uh, not be dependent on anybody. Basically, we, we want to get, get resource so that we can share it out. And in that way, we can love other people just as we've been loved. Um, so we benefit those outside the church. Now, each of you in here have called, are being called now. You can, maybe you've spent a lifetime doing this, following this call. Maybe this is new to you. You're called to follow that ultimate Marmite person, which is Jesus. You either love him, or if you take him seriously, he's very offensive. We're called to follow Jesus. We're called to live like him. And the reason behind this, the pushing reason, it's because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are loved already. We are loved in him. And those of you who say, okay, but these calls to live a better life actually are really burdensome, remember that you will fall short, but because you are in Christ, you are literally covered in him. The metaphors are found everywhere throughout the Bible. You are covered in the blood is a, is a slightly a very graphic one, but you are in Jesus. So when you fall short, Jesus is sufficient. You are loved as an image bearer of God and where all of your inadequacies are made up for in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you're not loved for who you are. You were even before that point. So, live like Jesus because you are loved in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and active I pray that we would be able to live like Jesus, knowing that we are loved in Jesus. Amen.